0: Chapter Eighteen of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Eighteen, Incidents of Mounted Police Life. A Drowning Fatality a very sad accident occurred in june eighteen eighty nine whereby a promising young constable named albert perry lost his life he was one of a small detachment of a corporal and three mounted men who were camped on the right bank of the little bow river where it runs into the belly river on the west side thereof this detachment had been placed there in the spring of eighteen eighty nine and was intended to furnish protection to a large number of cattle which ranged over a great tract of land, much of it affording excellent feed, in a locality where settlers were very few and far between. The few settlers that were in the neighborhood were much afraid of the Indians, whose main fault was their insatiable curiosity. Men, women, and children were all curious to see the inside of a white man's house, and to that end would prowl about the premises, peer in at the windows, and eventually try the doors. If the doors would open, the entire outfit would probably walk in, sit on the floor, and wait to be asked if they had an appetite. We had already had an hysterical complaint from the C.Y. ranch, where there were men enough to stand off a few inquisitive Indians, but it devolved upon us to send a patrol, which tore down the visitors' tents and ordered them back to their reserve. There was always the possible making of trouble in a proposition of this kind for the indians were under no obligation to confine themselves to the reserves their treaties with the government made no provision of that kind and it is a certainty that they would not have signed them if they had as it happened our bluff was never called by the indians who invariably did as we wanted them to do The owners of the large number of cattle that ranged in the Little Bow country were naturally apprehensive that a body of Indians travelling at large would not hesitate to kill cattle if they happened to run out of grub. This was the raison d'etre of the mounted police camp on the Little Bow, which was situated at a distance of about twenty miles from Lethbridge in a direct line. But Lethbridge is on the east side of the Belly River, which it was thus necessary to cross. All mountain streams are very dangerous to cross during the spring freshets, and strong teams of horses or oxen with wagons have been known to be carried off their feet and swept away by the rush of water. There was a ferry across the river at Lethbridge, at the time of which I speak, and by that route the distance to the little bow camp was about thirty-five miles. This increase in the distance was caused by a large coulee which struck westward from the river, and round which it was necessary to make a detour. Opposite the mouth of the little bow, there was a ford across the Belly River. The ford was freely available in low water, but not in the month of June, when, owing to the melting of the mountain snows, the river was running like a torrent. It was the custom of all detachments to render weekly reports to divisional headquarters, and Constable Perry had been sent to Lethbridge with his detachments, returns, etc., and had been instructed that the Belly River could not be forded, and that he must travel by the long route. He delivered his reports, etc., at Lethbridge, and, in the ordinary course of routine, left barracks one morning to rejoin his detachment. Three or four days later, a man rode in to ask what had become of Perry as he had not returned to camp. We began to make inquiries. The ferryman told us that he had taken him across in the morning, but had recrossed him in the evening, as the boy had come back and had said he had lost his way. He announced his intention of taking the shorter cut in the morning, but the ferryman warned him against trying to ford or swim the river, and advised him to go to barracks and tell his troubles. Poor Perry was afraid of the inevitable chaff as to being a tenderfoot, which would make his life a burden in the barrack room, and disregarded the ferryman's advice. He took the trail instead to a small settlement known as the Eight Mile Lake, about eight miles east of Lethbridge, and there asked a rancher to put him up for the night. No rancher in those days ever refused such a request as that, but when he heard of the young man's predicament, he earnestly remonstrated with him as to attempting to cross the Belly River in flood. Remonstrances had no effect, and Perry started out in the morning after breakfast on his foolhardy errand and that was the last we could hear of him. As soon as the last report of his being missing reached me, I organized a large patrol to scour the country within a radius of twenty miles or so, and started with Staff Sergeant Charles Ross at four o'clock next morning. We went first to the Eight Mile Lake, where the aforesaid rancher, whom we knew well, told us all that he could tell, and we then headed for the mouth of the little bow ross was a very highly trained and experienced plainsman perry's horse was shod in front but plain behind and we had not long left the lake when ross said here's his trail now and again we had to stop and cast about when crossing a hard piece of clay prairie but for the most part we followed that trail at a hand gallop for from ten to twelve miles eventually arriving at the river and seeing perry's horse saddled and bridled standing under a cut bank on the opposite side of the river. There was nothing for the poor beast to eat, and he must have felt pretty sorry for himself. Fortunately, Ross knew of a punt that was in the neighborhood, and having borrowed that, we made the horse re-swim the river to our side. Perry's body was recovered about a fortnight later, some twenty miles further down the river. There was nothing to show how he had come by his death. He was said to be a first-rate swimmer, and had apparently fallen a victim to overconfidence. Singularly, some light was thrown upon the subject a few years later, when the same horse, Reg number 1570, I have never forgotten the brute's number, was on detachment duty on the St. Mary's River. At this detachment, we used to run our herd of spare horses, and as the river bounded the Blood Indian Reserve, it happened occasionally, that some of the herd would cross the river and graze on the other side. One afternoon, when it was nearly time to give the horses their oats, before locking them up for the night, the corporal in charge ordered one of his men to cross the river and bring back some of the herd that were there. Number 1570 happened to be the horse, whose turn it was to perform such duty for the day, and on his back the constable rode into the river, which was, fortunately, not at high-water mark. The corporal stood on the bank, watching the proceedings, and saw the horse, as soon as he found himself out of his depth and obliged to swim, deliberately roll the rider off his back. In the circumstances, no harm resulted on that occasion, but there is no doubt that this is how Perry lost his life, and no man was ever, after, asked to ride that particular brute into swimming water. Lynch Law on the evening of February thirteenth, 1895, it was reported to me at Lethbridge that a man named Willis had blown his brains out. I went to his house and found that the report was in no way exaggerated, as brains were scattered all over one of the walls of his bedroom. He had put the muzzle of a Winchester rifle into his mouth and pressed the trigger with his great toe. The deceased, whom I had known for some years, had had good situations, had lost them through drink and he had been steadily going down the hill for some time his earnings being very precarious at this time he was out of work and the wolf was at his door the household in fact was kept going by a lodger named james ronald but for him mrs willis had said on one occasion we should have had nothing to eat Willis had, however, frequently complained to various people of the undue intimacy between his lodger and his wife, an intimacy extending over a period of years, and not a little indignation had been aroused by the treatment which the husband complained of having received. It was said that on one occasion, when Willis arrived at home, somewhat the worse for liquor, he found his wife sitting in her lodger's lap and when he remonstrated with them, the lodger put him quietly, but firmly, out of the house, shut the door, and turned the key in the lock. Ronald had been away from Lethbridge for a time, but had now returned, and it is no disregard of the obligation, de Mortius, to say that when Willis readmitted Ronald to his household, he knew what his past experience had been. Ronald attended the funeral as chief mourner, and it was said that this helped to precipitate matters. Be that as it may, soon after midnight on the second day after the tragedy, a band of masked and armed men broke into the house on the outskirts of the town, occupied by James Ronald and his brother Maxwell, who were in bed together at the time. Maxwell was covered by a rifle and ordered not to move. His brother James was pulled out of bed, tarred, feathered dressed and led with a rope round his neck by a half-mile route to the front door of the lethbridge house which was the principal hotel in the town he was pushed into the hall the door was temporarily fastened from without and the masked gang rapidly and quietly disappeared james ronald was then at liberty to make his way home without molestation it was rather a stormy night with drifting snow a night on which few people would be about the streets and no noise was made Maxwell was detained in bed under the guard of two men, and was forbidden to stir for twenty minutes. At the end of that time his guards departed, and he was allowed to dress and to find his way to my house, where he arrived at a quarter past one. I rang up the town police station and asked the sergeant in charge what had become of James Ronald, and he replied that Ronald had gone home. There was nothing to be done that night. Maxwell had told me that the masked gang were very sparing with their words. Any orders that were given were given by a stranger who acted as captain in a quiet, incisive voice with a drawl. Neither of the brothers was able to identify any of their assailants, nor could they give us any information which would help us to trace them. So they decided to let the matter drop, and James left town at once for the east, declining either to make or support a complaint. The incident, however, found its way into the papers, and in a few weeks' time I received from Mr. Ronald Senior, the father of the brothers, a letter urging me very strongly to bring the masked gang to justice. He said he made a great point of this because a new association had come into being, calling themselves the Patrons of Industry, and one of the planks in their platform was the abolition of the mounted police. I felt there was a covert threat in the letter but as i had no intention of letting the matter drop i could not understand why the old man should write to me in such a strain the reason which i heard some months later will appear in its proper place in my reply to the old man i said that the matter would unquestionably receive my serious attention provided he would guarantee that his son james would return to the west to give evidence when called upon to do so ronald senior readily gave the required guarantee and as soon as it came into my hands i issued for execution a warrant which had been locked up in my drawer for some little time just here i must go back for a little space to recount some circumstances that had taken place in the interval i had not actually imputed blame to the sergeant in charge of the town detachment for one having permitted this outrage to take place and two for having no trace of the perpetrator's but I allowed him to see what was in my mind, and it was no surprise to me when, a few days later, he asked to be relieved of his charge and to be returned to duty in the barracks. He was subsequently, in the course of that duty, exercising a horse when the brute bucked, threw him against the stable wall, and broke his arm. Thereupon, he went into the hospital. We had our own hospital within the barrack grounds. A few days after this accident it came to my knowledge that sergeant fair was one of the members of the tar and feather gang and that he had been seen on that eventful evening with a black mask in his possession and tar and feathers on his winchester carbine about the same time while i was corresponding with mr ronald senior his son max came to me one day and said that he had found the captain of the gang he said that in an idle moment he was smoking a pipe and basking in the afternoon sunshine in front of the lethbridge house when he heard a voice the incisive drawl of which he can never forget he abandoned all other business that afternoon and devoted it to studying this man and finding out all about him and where he was living the man's name was charles warren he was an american citizen and had been in town for a few months doing no work and having no visible means of support but quiet and inoffensive withal. He habitually carried a six-shooter in his breast pocket, and had been asked to lead the gang because he was supposed to have had previous experiences in like exploits, and there was less chance of his voice being recognized. Entreating Max to keep his secret rigidly to himself, I took his information and issued a warrant for Warren's arrest. It was then that I began to look, rather anxiously, for a reply for Mr. Ronald Sr. as to his son James's intentions. I should explain here that the entire community, ministers of religion, men, women, and children of all sorts and conditions, were of the opinion that poetic justice had been done. The Presbyterian minister voiced the sentiments of the local public when he said to me one day that James Ronald had committed a moral offence for which the law was powerless to punish him, and it was not well that he should go unpunished altogether. He admitted that he was in no way in favour of mob law, but he could not regret what had happened. Of course, Captain, he queried. You have to do your duty, and I suppose this matter will have to come up some day. Oh, yes, I replied. It will go into court some time before Christmas, and in the meanwhile I am not losing any sleep over it. With such a feeling of sympathy with the lawbreakers in the minds of the public, it can be readily understood that any punitive proceedings had to be very warily undertaken. I took but one person into my confidence, and he was a man whom I could trust out and out, Staff Sergeant P. H. Belcher, who was then Quartermaster Sergeant of the Division. He had a little room wherein he lived, behind the storerooms, and to him I betook myself i could not myself have visited sergeant fair in the hospital and held lengthy conversations with him without attracting a certain amount of attention and i therefore deputed staff sergeant belcher to tell him that i was in possession of evidence which would enable me to convict him of disgraceful conduct under the police act and to give him 12 months imprisonment in addition to any other sentence that might follow a conviction for burglary in the supreme court I desired that he would take time to think it over, because if he should choose to turn Queen's evidence, I would undertake to lay no charge against him at all. He took time to consider whether he would tell what he knew, or take his medicine, and finally decided that he would tell all. I asked in the first instance for the names of the gang. There were eight of them altogether, and two had left the country by the time I wanted them, so that I had only four to locate, and that was soon done. On June 7th, Warren was arrested by Sergeant Brimer, and summonses to witness were at once served on three members of the gang. I issued a warrant for the 4th upon information sworn that he would probably leave the country rather than obey a summons. I held the preliminary examination myself, the crown being represented by Mr. Coneybear, the private prosecutor, by a Mr. Wrigley, a young barrister of repute, and the accused by an ex-partner of Mr. Connybear's, who thought he could make more money by defending than by prosecuting criminals. In accordance with the authority conferred upon me by the criminal code, I informed the legal gentleman at the opening of the court that I intended the inquiry to be private, and that I proposed in the first instance to examine the witnesses myself. This rule I designed to apply more particularly to the four witnesses who had been participators in the outrage, and I took them very minutely over the whole of the evening of February 13th and pinned them down to a sworn statement as to where they were and how they spent that particular evening from about seven or eight o'clock until well after midnight. They told their respective stories with an amplification and lucidity of detail which not only branded them as most prolific liars with a wonderful fertility of imagination, but showed also that they had no knowledge of the tar and feather proceedings, the making of the masts, etc., and eventually headed off any question of an alibi for the accused. There was no need for counsel to examine further or cross-examine these witnesses, and after their perjured testimony had been duly recorded and signed by themselves, they were allowed to depart. Max Ronald was examined and cross-examined in the usual way, and on his evidence, the accused was committed for trial, as he reserved his defence. The next step was to obtain a change of venue, and this was granted by the judge upon the affidavit of Messieurs Coney Wrigley and myself, that we believed ourselves to be the only residents of Lethbridge who were of the opinion that the accused would not receive an impartial trial in that town. The trial was set for July 6th at MacLeod, a place about 32 miles westward, and thither the accused was sent by a four-horse team in good time. Thither, too, was dispatched James Ronald on his arrival from the east. As he, like his brother, would be able to identify Warren by his voice alone, I asked Superintendent Steele, who was in command of the McLeod Post, to arrange to have some conversation with the accused within the hearing of James the witness. This was easily brought about, and Superintendent Steele told me that On hearing Warren's voice, James became so nervous that he trembled and could hardly stand. It became a grave question whether or not we could put him in the witness box at all. He had permitted himself at the inquest to say that he had had no improper relations with the woman, and the defense made no secret of their intention to produce the woman to contradict him, if he should repeat such a statement. During my journey to MacLeod on the day before the trial, while my team was crossing the Old Man's River. The first rain fell during that year. The country was in a terrible state of drought, and the grass would hardly grow on the prairie. The seasons had been growing gradually drier ever since 1888, and the climax was reached in the year of which I am speaking, 1895. During those dry years, we invariably had hard winters, with some snow which furnished the only moisture that the soil received until the autumn, when heavy rains set in, generally when our hay crop was being harvested. At Lethbridge, the only hay that we could get at that time was grass cut round the edges of sloughs or swamps in the Milk River Ridge district, forty miles distant, and often it happened that contractors, after hauling their racks into our barracks, had to unload and dry their hay before stacking it in the following year 1896 when the liberals were returned to power the wet cycle began and there was a plentiful growth of green grass and sir wilfrid laurier was held accountable for the era of prosperity which then set in and has continued ever since so far as the trial went we did not fare much better at macleod than we should have done at lethbridge there had been at macleod a pigeon shooting match between the gun clubs of the two places and the visiting team had imbued the residents with their own ideas as we very soon found from their conversation on july sixth charles warren was placed in the dock to answer two counts of burglary and two of riot some members of the lethbridge gun club had told their friends in macleod that sergeant fair had been a member of the gang and this reached mr Bear's ears with the result that he insisted on his being called as a witness i explained to him that my word was pledged to the non-commissioned officer that he should not be prosecuted and that he must take the responsibility of calling fair a witness i sent a telegram to lethbridge ordering sergeant fair to be sent to macleod next morning in time for the opening of the court and met him at the door of the courthouse on his arrival it was rather fortunate that i did for i had an inkling that he might deny all knowledge of the affair and i think "'that is what he would have done. "'That would have attracted attention to himself, "'all the sympathy of the two towns, "'by whose residence he would have been hailed as a hero and a martyr, "'and I should have been placed in an awkward position "'by reason of the promise I had given him. "'I pointed out to Sergeant Fair "'that in the event of his taking such a stand as that, "'it might be my duty to convict him of perjury. "'This would not conflict with my promise.' and i should assuredly be able to do it i said this because evidence had already been given by the proprietor of the lethbridge hotel that he had seen the masked gang conducting their victim down the street and indeed he seemed to think it an excellent joke he had made the audience in court laugh once or twice and did so again when he described james ronald as looking not unlike a red indian when the judge looked up from his notebook and asked the crown prosecutor why has this man not been indicted? Well, my lord, began the counsel, cudgelling his brains for a suitable answer. Have it done at once, said his lordship, and down went the witness's jaw as far as it could go. There was no more jocularity left in him. As a matter of fact, neither counsel nor I knew what the witness would tell until he found himself in the box. The evidence of this witness, in conjunction with that of my original informant, would have sufficed to convict Sergeant Fair of perjury, and on my advice, he finally consented to tell the truth. He went into the witness box and confirmed Maxwell Ronald's story as to Warren being the man who had stood at the end of his bed with a revolver in his hand and had superintended the proceedings of the lawless gang. James Ronald was in such a state of nervous prostration that he was unable to give evidence at all, but the case was proved to the hilt, and his absence did not seem to matter. Counsel for the prisoner called no witnesses and made no defence. Counsel for the Crown waived their addresses to the jury, and prisoner's counsel thus secured the last word. The judge summed up against the prisoner, and the jury disagreed. The law required only six jurors, and of these, as we learned later, two we determined to convict. Two were determined not to convict in any circumstances whatsoever, and two were in a state of indecision. There was no prospect of their coming to an agreement, so they were discharged and a new trial ordered. It was unmistakably established afterwards that this impotent conclusion was brought about by a juror who was playing to the gallery of Lethbridge, where he had one or two bosom friends who sympathized with the prisoner. He had so little sense of truth and honour as to falsify his oath of office, which bound him to render a true verdict according to the evidence. Towards the close of the afternoon on which the jury were discharged, I was in a room in the MacLeod Hotel, changing from uniform into plain clothes, when I was drawn to the window by the sound of a heavy shower of rain and the patter of footsteps on the sidewalk across the street. I looked out and saw two men taking shelter under the overhanging eave of a doorway in a house opposite. They were the jurymen of whom I made mention, and the learned counsel for the prisoner. They were both well loaded, and it was enough to make a cat laugh to see them fall on one another's necks. The jurymen were obviously taking credit for holding out against a conviction, and the other was only too willing to give him all the credit he wanted i stood at the window and watched them until the shower ceased as suddenly as it had begun and they staggered off arm in arm a new trial was ordered for july tenth and on the night of the ninth sergeant fair deserted the new trial was not unlikely to make some trouble for sundry prominent people in lethbridge in that the charge was to be altered so as to dispense with the intervention of a jury a subscription of a hundred dollars was hastily raised by the persons most interested in sergeant fair's absence and he was persuaded to leave the country sergeant fair's arm was at the time in a plaster splint and he could move about freely the hospital wherein he was housed stood in the southeast corner of the barrack enclosure within a few feet of a road with nothing but a wire fence intervening and sergeant fair was persuaded to climb into a waiting buggy, and was driven across the international boundary into Montana. He only received forty dollars out of the hundred, which had been subscribed, as the driver thought that sixty was due to himself. Warren was released on bail until the winter assizes, and took advantage of his freedom to cross the boundary. One of his sureties followed him. The case was called at McLeod in the following November, but the accused did not appear, and his bail was ordered to be estreated. The prosecution, however, had its effect, and was such as to discourage further experiments with lynch law. A little later in the summer, when I was inspecting my Milk River detachments, I met a well-known rancher who chatted about the tar and feather episode. He told me that the men, who were mainly instrumental in carrying out the project, had written full accounts of it to their friends in ontario and in one of the letters occurred the expression and the chief of police was the biggest toad in the puddle that of course explained mr ronald's letter to me he knew that i was chief of police and actually supposed that i had taken a hand in the business pagan frank pagan pronounced pagan frank was a Blood Indian whom I engaged as a scout soon after I went to Lethbridge in 1888. As the Blood Indian Reserve was close by, it was necessary that we should know something of the movements of the Indians, for it was the policy of the government to keep them on their reserve as much as possible, and in order to do that we used to employ a couple of scouts who would visit the reserve and bring us news at first hand. An interpreter was attached to the headquarter post as very few of the Indians could speak English, but it happened that Frank could understand and speak it fairly well. He applied for the job, was recommended by the Indian agent, and was consequently engaged at ten dollars a month and rations. Scouts were required to mount themselves, but they were very particular in exacting the issue of a saddle and revolver. This was the outward and visible sign of their high calling as mounted police scouts. One afternoon I was busy in my office and heard the sound of wheels outside. In a minute or two it was reported to me that Pagan Frank had brought in two prisoners, but that it was not exactly clear what was the charge against them. They came into my office, a young man and a woman, nicely dressed, well-mannered, good-looking, and obviously in the courtship stage. The young man had hired a buggy for the afternoon and was taking his best girl out for a drive in the country when that villain Frank came across them and ordered them back to the village for no earthly reason whatever except to show his authority. As he had his revolver drawn they thought it best to do as he told them and turned their horse's head round without delay. I apologized profusely for the Indian's behavior and the young couple were very nice about it and were not disinclined to look upon the whole thing as a joke. Before they left my office, however, I ordered Master Frank to hand in his pistol and saddle and then to go straight back to his reserve and to tell the agent he had been discharged because he was no good. The sweethearts then resumed their drive. I did not set eyes on Pagan Frank again for many years, not, I think, until 1900, when he applied to me for a job. We were very short handed at that time, so many of our men being in South Africa, and I happened to have a vacancy which the Indian could very well fill. I established him in camp in the detachment grounds at Kip, a place half way between Lethbridge and McLeod, where the trail crosses the old man's river. He was always on the lookout for me when I made my weekly journeys between the two places, and attended strictly to business. In June of 1900, the superintendent of the Canadian Pacific Division of that company's Crow's Nest Pass Line, stationed at Cranbrook, B.C., informed me that the eastbound train of the previous evening had found a cartwheel laid across the rails near Kip, and that an Indian had been seen in the distance walking south. As a matter of fact, there were some camps of Indians, haymakers in the vicinity. The superintendent said that he had been Talking to the sergeant in charge of the Pincher Creek detachment, who suggested that it would be a good plan to have a mounted policeman travel on each passenger train within certain limits, and the superintendent thought the suggestion so good that he brought it to my notice. Had the sergeant in question been within hailing distance, I should have given him the rough edge of my tongue for talking such rubbish, particularly when he knew how short handed the division was but to the superintendent I wrote and asked, in effect, if the constable in police charge of a train, in the course of his journey, sees something suspicious by the roadside and desires to investigate, will he have the authority to stop the train for that purpose? If not, he might just as usefully be lying on his bed in his barrack room. It did not surprise me that I did not receive a reply to that letter, although I enlarged on the effect that might be produced upon passengers by red-croat accoutrements boots and spurs, and all the paraphernalia of war, and the matter rested until I drove to Lethbridge on the Saturday following. At Kip, my scout was, as usual, waiting for me. "'Frank,' I said, "'someone is putting things on rails, mile and a half west of here. "'You go and find out who does it. Move your tent over there.' "'Yes, sir,' said Frank, and I continued my journey.' Next week, as I did not want a bad railway accident to occur within my district, I drove back on Monday instead of Tuesday, a day earlier than usual, and thus I had no expectation of seeing Frank at the river crossing. But there he was beaming. Injun chillin', he reported. Put iron brake shoe on rail, and then go and sit on hill and see sparks fly when train comes. He had learned this from a little boy named Shines in the Night and presently the little chap went with Frank and me to the spot and showed us how he and two companions a little older than himself had placed the brake shoe on the rail and some stones in front of it and how they had retired up the hill to enjoy the fireworks. The two other boys were called the Lizard and Slapmouth, and Frank had orders to bring them all into my office at McLeod on the following Wednesday. He was to notify the Reverend Mr. Owens who conducted a Church of England mission on the blood reserve, that I should like him to be present, as I intended that these boys should go to his school, and he was to tell all the relations and friends of the boys in question that the poor little fellows were in the hottest kind of water, and that it looked as if the penitentiary doors were opening to admit them. The difficulty with the Indian parents was that they would not send their children to school and keep them there, and now I had a grand opportunity of disposing of some of the young rascals, and did not intend to let it go. Frank rubbed the fear of God into the parents and relations in great shape, so that, when my solemn investigation began at two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, the poor Indians were ready to agree to anything in order to save their progeny from prison. The two older boys tried to put the entire blame upon shines in the night, but the brake shoe, a heavy lump of iron, was in court, and I told the boy to lift it. He was barely strong enough to raise it, much less to carry it, and so that story did not go. The end of it was that the boy's parents undertook to let the Reverend Mr. Owens have the care of the children until they should become eighteen years of age, and he agreed to receive them into his mission school and to look well after them. To prevent any further mischief of the same sort, I stationed an Indian scout, to watch the railway across the reserve so long as any indian camps remained in that neighbourhood and there were no more complaints end of chapter eighteen